what we call esoteric <laughs> traditions in the Near East are largely temple traditions gone into the wild. You're listening to talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. in the next 90 minutes, and I'd like to leave as much time as I can for discussion. Discussion more than questions, because I think the point of this talk for me is that it raises a whole bunch of interesting ideas that you can just play with, um, and that's really why I'm talking about it today. So um, my, my aim is to describe the, the <coughs> temple theology or the temple hypothesis that originates with Dr. Margaret Barker. Um, I'll talk a bit more about who she is and where this comes from, um, but the task that I have today is basically impossible because, yeah, I'll, I'll say more in a minute. So, can I just get a quick show of hands? Who's familiar with Margaret Barker or who's read a Margaret Barker book at all? Or has heard me talk about Margaret Barker at some point? Or has listened to the Talknosis episode? Or anything like that? Okay, so roughly half the room. Okay, so I just wanted to make sure that if... So there's some people for whom this is a new thing and there's some people for whom this is familiar, so I'm going to have to navigate that familiarity territory a little bit. I hope, I hope this goes okay. Um, so just to kind of, a little bit of a background, this is um, Dr. Barker, she's, um, she's adorable. I just want to kind of tuck her under your arm and take her home. She's just very sweet. She's, um, she read theology at Cambridge, uh, which I realize is an English terminology about studying, but I don't exactly know what it means. It, I'm not sure it implies she got a degree in theology or whether she just showed up to Cambridge for a little while. That's a degree. It's a degree? She read for a degree. Okay, good. Um, she's a Methodist preacher. She's the former president of the Society for Old Testament Study. Um, and she was awarded a, a Doctor of Divinity by the Archbishop of Canterbury. This Archbishop of Canterbury, in fact, um, he's a filthy heretic, Rowan Williams, just in case you're not aware. I mean, he wrote a book defending Arius, for God's sake, which is like, you know, things you don't do. But he gets away with it. Um, I love Ron Williams. He's my favourite Archbishop of Canterbury, basically, ever. He wrote, poetry. he wrote mystical poetry. He had a section of the Archbishop's website devoted to his poetry. Cool dude. Shut up to druid things. Anyway, that's Margaret in her DD outfit. I don't know who the other dude is. Probably a Chancellor of the Exchequer or something. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, uh, this is why my task is basically impossible, because she's been up to this for some time, and she's written 17 books. Um, around the ideas that come out of the temple orient the first temple orientation. Um, so they're all thick. Most of them are completely impenetrable. Like, like um, she has a mode of engaging with primary material which involves engaging with a vast amount of primary material in every book. So it's, and she's engaging with sources that for lay people you, don't, you can't get access to. So uh, apocryphal stuff and lots of archaeological data that you can't get direct access to. So it's, one, it's there's a range of people working in modern theology. I think Mary Collow, who I've spoken about in previous conclaves, falls under the same kind of heading. That it's very difficult as a layperson to check and verify whether what the person's saying is accurate or reasonable. It's it's really a it's a prof it's professional scholar business. So the way I tend to engage with these folks is to kind of see if the ideas are interesting, see if the ideas that they're talking about resonate with my own sense of things and with my own. Um, I guess my own engagement with my spirituality, and if they do, I use them. 
So it's traditional at an AJC conclave to say, now of course I'm not a scholar, and that's actually, of course it's true, I'm not a, at least I'm not a scholar of theology. Um, and that's, I, I think, and I think this, this disposition towards scholarship is, is probably an appropriate one for those of us that, that aren't working as professional theologians, and that's, does the idea gel with how with your take on things and with how you engage with your own spirituality. If it does, then go ahead and use it. If it doesn't, then drop it like a hot rock and run. Um, so, Dr. Barker's work really does um, connect with my sense of spirituality. Let me, so, I, let's just do the impossible. So, so, let's just try and summarize in one slide essentially what she's getting at. So, her key thing is to try to work out what the Hebrew religion that was practiced in the first temple period in Judea looked like. So what was actually going on? So um, to get to that, there's, there's several kind of... These aren't actually hypotheses. These are kind of... Some of, some of them are conclusions and some of them are axioms. But anyway, so the, the, the thing you've got to grasp to get this... So the, we'll wander through some details in this, and I, I think one of the things that's just interesting is to consider the possibility that most of what you think you understand about Old Testament history, most of what you think you understand about Jewish religion, most of what you think you understand about the deep roots of Christianity is mostly wrong. <laughs> it's largely all incorrect. Most of the people you think of as pivotal figures in the history of Hebrew religion probably didn't exist, or they're amalgams of several figures. There's no historical evidence for basically any of the Old Testament patriarchs with the possible exception of David, which there's hints in other people's historical records that maybe there was a king called David, maybe, or maybe there was a king around the same time who did some of the things that David said to say. But some of the most pivotal figures, like Abraham, nothing. Moses, absolutely nothing. <laughs> there's absolutely no justification for believing that Moses even existed let alone that he was called Moses, let alone that he did most of the things that he did. So a lot of what we, grow, if you've grown up in Christian tradition or in Jewish tradition and you've been handed this stuff as history, you kind of have to loosen your grip on it as being historical truth. And one of the most particular things, and I'll get to the details of this, one of the most particular things that you've got to kind of let go of and kind of come back at from a different direction is that the way I was brought up was to kind of understand that more or less the order of the books in the Old Testament was the historical unfolding, unfolding of the, the nation of Israel. So we start with God creating the world at the beginning, and then we march through the patriarchal period in Genesis and Exodus, and then the law gets handed down and detailed in exquisitely fine and painstaking detail. Um, and then there was some, you know, some judges and some kings and some prophets and so on, and some minor prophets, and then boom, Jesus, and now, now the excitement in the New Testament. Um, that's nonsense. Uh, th those books appeared in a, complete, in a completely different order from the way they're arranged. They're arranged um, for convenience of access and for, for narrative. That, that's not the, the order in which they appeared. So we'll kind of delve into that a little bit. One of the key things to get at Dr. Barker's um, orientation towards things is to understand a pivotal period just prior to, I've said exile, what I mean is captivity, I'm really sorry, the slide's wrong. Just prior to the Babylonian captivity, um, a pivotal moment happens in the, the history of religion in Israel. Uh, and understanding that moment and the consequences of that moment change everything that happens afterwards. So kind of understanding some of, grasping some of what's actually said. It's actually said in a very short passage in 
the book of Samuel, I think, um, I think 1 Samuel, where this king called Josiah uh, undertakes some reforms. It's kind of dispensed with in about half a chapter um, in this book. But when you look at the depth of what that particular king does, and you look at where that's placed historically, the effect that that has on everything that happens afterwards is tremendous. Um, so part of what Dr. Bach is doing is trying to look at, given what happened then, given what we know about the text that happened afterwards, and then looking in very fine detail at what may and may not have been changed or altered or edited, what can we infer about what might have happened before. It's very painstaking detailed stuff, and really easy to argue. So it's very important to understand that all this is kind of guesses and tentative and things pieced together from a kind of bricolage of multiple sources. Um, but it's nevertheless evocative and interesting, and I think it's particularly interesting for us, which is why I'm talking about it today. So, the first point is that the religion prevalent in Israel slash Judea, Israel kind of, we tend to talk about the whole thing is Israel, but, but at this period, sort of, Israel's the northern kingdom and Judea's the southern kingdom. I think that's right. I'm waiting for Ed to nod. So, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> You're not helping me. Is that right? What was your question again? So, the northern kingdom... The northern kingdom is Israel and the southern kingdom is Judea. So we tend to talk about Israel to mean the whole thing, or Judea. but yeah. At, at various times they've been joined up under foreign occupation or under a single king, but, but broadly. Um, the, that reign of King Josiah profoundly altered the structure of Hebrew religious practice during this particular period, and we're talking around 600 BC. Um, and the religion was profoundly altered and several key things were lost. And among the th key things were lost that were lost is two distinct divine figures. Um, the great lady, so a feminine divine figure, the central concept of atonement and the function that atonement played in religious life in the first temple period that it loses in the second temple period. The key figure of Melchizedek and a key notion of, high, of a royal high priesthood and, and the, the role that Melchizedek um, and the notion of a messiah plays in the concept of a royal high priesthood. So, Barker's hypothesis is that what we think of as Christian theology, mysticism, and liturgy are memories or echoes in oral tradition and in diaspora of that first temple religion brought back into, main, into the mainstream by Jesus and his followers. So we're looking at a recovered tradition, or a re reinstated or reconstituted tradition, not something that kind of emerges fully formed from the brow of Jesus Christ by direct inspiration of God the Father. Controversial, I know. Um, but if you're like me, then at some time you've scratched your head and gone, really? He made all that up? Just all on his own? It just kind of landed on him out of nowhere? So, I, you know, when people ask me what the name of our church is, and I said, can you spell that? Yeah, sure. Here, have a card, right? What does Joanite mean? or Yoanite, depending on which coast you're from, I suppose, or which part of Calgary you grew up in. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> or Johannanite, if you're from Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is the... What is the well, I say, and one thing I often say is, well, we draw from the kind of spirituality seen in the Gospel of John, and that's a, that's a fine way to put it. But the other thing is that we venerate the two Johns. We venerate John the Beloved and we venerate John the Baptist. Well, why do you do that? Well, well, in a way, this is all kind of the hand wave stage of explaining the church. <coughs> John the Beloved tells us that there's a direct connection from Jesus through succession to us. He's the forward connection. And John the Baptist tells us that there's a direct connection from Jesus back into the, the paleo-mystical traditions of the Near East. I say, waving my hand. So what I've 
come to kind of, I mean, so I've always rested myself, I've always rested on this idea that everything we think of as Christianity, Christian Gnosticism, Christian mysticism, emerges out of an earlier tradition from somewhere, and there's various, you know, every, every esoteric organization has its institutional narrative that tells us exactly where that comes from. What I like about Dr. Barker's hypothesis is that it gives us a plausible locale for that emergence, and it gives us some explanations for why we see these peculiar resonances between different Near Eastern traditions and interesting differences between different Near Eastern traditions, um, which I find satisfying, because it doesn't try to say, well, it all came out of here and then it was written down and everyone just, you know, just emerged from that place. And it doesn't try to make up that it was all kind of invented. Um, stop me if you've either heard this one before or you have a question. So the sources that Dr. Barker draws from uh, um, both the Hebrew and Greek versions of, of the canonical scriptures, of Old Testament scriptures particularly. Um, so there's versions of the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew, obviously, um, but then also there's Greek translations of them, and then the particular, the thing with translation is that when you're shifting from one language to another, there's multiple connotations to every word, so you have to pick a connotation in the source word to represent with a connotation of the target word and that's translation. And some things are always left out, and some things are always added in that process. So the classic, I mean, one of the classic ones we often talk about is when you're translating amartia in Greek into sin in English. So sin's an Anglo-Saxon word. Amartia carries with it a connotation because its origin is from archery, and carries with the connotation of aiming for a target and missing the target, and that's kind of lovely. And it also means, you know, getting it wrong and making a transgression and, and failing, right? Sin comes from Anglo-Saxon jurisprudence, and so it carries with it a connotation of courtrooms and judges and crime and punishment, and it also carries with it a concept of transgression and of missing the mark and, and not measuring up. Right. So the place in which those the, the particular two meanings of those words that we join up are around transgression, but sin has a range of potentially unfortunate connotations that weren't there in Amartya, and Amartya has a, a range of potentially helpful connotations that aren't there in sin, and so we wind up with the concept of sin that we have in English today. So this happens every time any word is translated from any language to any other language. And it's, there's some particularly difficult parts of translation in the history of Christianity. Translating from Hebrew or Aramaic or any of the Semitic languages into Greek is by its nature a very, very difficult thing because their clouds of connotations are very different. The thought structures of the two languages are extremely different. And so lots of things are lost and lots of things are gained in those those particular translations, and then it gets even more hilarious when you get into Latin, and then even more hilarious when you get into English, and welcome to Christianity over the last 2,000 years, really. I, I'm fond of saying, largely, the history of Christian uh, theology is the history of translation. I, I think I'm not really overdressing that point, but... Um, sorry? Bad translation. Bad translation, yeah, or at least ones I disagree with, which is what we mean when we say bad translation. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting about Hebrew and Greek particularly, this is a massive digression which I shouldn't be taking because I'm short of time, but Hebrew, because of the, the morphological structure of Hebrew, so when you write Hebrew words, what you're writing is the consonants. Um, the vowels are kind of uh, read in from context, or occasionally these days, you, I mean in, these days in modern Hebrew you, you point them, you add vowel marks in to kind of indicate what the vowels are. But in ancient Hebrew you didn't, they were just Everyone knew what the vowels were. So this is, you know, why the holy unspeakable name of God is unspeakable because no one wrote down what the vowels were between your hey, vah, hey. Um, What that, most, most of us know that. What's 
not as well known is that the way that uh, roots and derivations, roots and derivative words work in Hebrew is very different from the way it works in a, a language like Greek or Latin or English. So in Greek or Latin, when you take a root word, it's, the, it's a stem, and when you make a derivation from it, you add suffixes onto it. This is what we do in English, right? You start off with act, and then you get to actor and action, and right? you add ends, endings on to make derivations from the word. In Hebrew, the way you make a derivation from the root word is the consonants, and then by adding different vowels in between the consonants, you get a range of other words that derive from that root word, which leads you into the kind of thought world which we saw in Greg's presentation about the Kabbalah. So it's a world in which words that are maybe quite unrelated can be kind of related. The difference between connections and puns is, is different to the way it is in English. Lots of things feel like they resonate. It's really tempting to make analogies to shifting sands in the desert and heat haze and mirages and the way you imagine that you might think if you lived in a place with lots of wide open space and lots of sort of vagueness around what was around you. And it leads to a way of looking at mysticism and um, spiritual stuff that's a lot softer and a lot smushier, and so things blend into one another and blend through one another in Hebrew thought in a way that's quite unfamiliar. So one of the reasons it's unfamiliar is that our experience of Hebrew thought is Hebrew thought as it's inflected through Greek thought. So just about everything I just said about Hebrew thought is exactly the opposite way about in Greek thought. So Greek is an extremely precise language. Uh, the Greeks were at pains to have the correct and precise word to describe everything they could ever think of, and we've inherited that thought tradition. So to go, so Alexander the Great conquers most of the known world, and during the course of that, Israel becomes colonized by Greek-speaking Hellenists, and at some point, you've got to translate Hebrew notions into Greek notions. Uh, hilarity ensues. And so what we're seeing in, in a lot of Near Eastern traditions is that ways to express that smushiness in the analytical, didactic mode of Greek thought. And, and it's complex and difficult. We'll unpack that as more as we go. Anyway, so that's the first bullet point. <laughs> so the reason it's really interesting to analyze the Hebrew and Greek versions of the Old Testament scriptures next to each other is because they give profoundly different ways to look at the same set of ideas in two completely different thought worlds. Okay. So then she also looks at uh, quotes in the New Testament of Old Testament scriptures, and there's lots of places where various of the apostles, Paul notably, quotes a lot of stuff from the Old Testament but the quote that he uses isn't in the Old Testament as we have it today. So he was reading from a different version of that scripture to the one we've got access to now. So something has happened between then and now. So what's happened and how did it happen and who did it? These are interesting questions. So also Jewish and Christian apocrypha and pseudepigraphia, so the other sort of cloud of other sort of semi-scriptural texts that are kind of around, like the Secret Book of James and so on. The Dead Sea Scrolls, Gnostic stuff, um, other ancient Near Eastern texts from Canaanite and Ugaritic sources, stuff like that, um, and then rabbinic stuff, early Christian writings and liturgies, which again quote from scripture, and then some of the stuff that we get from archaeology and, and excavated art, art and architecture from the period. Like I said, it's a big job <laughs> getting through temple theology, and we're not going to get most of it, but that's some... Um, my notes say, brief stuff about Barker approach sources. Okay, well, that was brief enough. So the context that we're talking about is this, well, this, this is the floor plan of the building we're discussing. So this is um, 
I mean, it's a made-up floor plate. Like, no one actually knows kind of what the shape of it was. And this is probably from, from a sonic source, so, you know, um, it'll do, really. Because the key things are there's uh, an outer court, which um, <coughs> I think most Jews could go into. There's uh, the two pillars that we keep hearing about, Boaz and Yakin, right? Boaz and Yakin, I think, yeah, something. Um, and then you move through between the two pillars and you're in the temple proper, which only priests can go into. And then there's a veil just here. There's altars for various things. There's a veil just here. There's a, and this is the Holy of Holies, which is drawn badly because it's meant to be a cubicle room um, lined in gold. So it's a, it's a cube lined in gold and filled with light because if you've got a room that's entirely lined with gold and you put anything, any light source in it, you get blinded almost immediately. Okay? And there's a veil so that nobody can go into the Holy of Holies except for the high priest. It's the only person who's allowed in. And the high priest only goes in at certain times of the year. So that's the original structure of the temple. So it's like the tree of life. And vice versa. Exactly. So that... <laughs> Basically, every progressive model that goes through several veils up several stages is probably drawing from the, the architecture of this building. And this building in turn drew from buildings before it that we no longer are able to see, right? This didn't come out of nowhere either. Solomon didn't just make stuff up out of his brain, right? Um, here's another picture which is more entertaining, although harder to see. So here's the outer courtyard. There's a thing called the Brazen Sea which is for bathing in, it's a purification vat. There's an altar for burning sacrifices on, there's the two pillars, there's the inner court, which is gilt, um, it has engravings, and then there's the, the Holy of Holies. Um, so aside from the throne with the two cherubim, the Holy of Holies, I think, also had the menorah and various other items in it. Um, there's <laughs> the difficulty in saying anything about temple theology is the sheer number of, ex of ridiculous details that you can go into, and I, I have to kind of Okay, so if you want to find out more about it, read a Margaret Barker book, and I can recommend the ones to start with later, but we're going to have to skim lightly across the top, and I'm really sorry. So, so here are the key points to the way this theory works out. When you dig through the sources and you try to look at what we're getting at. So what she discovers is um, some key things. One is the, the centrality of the temple in, in Hebrew life. This is not a great secret. But the particular way, the particular disposition towards spirituality that the temple gives you, um, and the prevalence of, of language that we see as mystical or esoteric in lots of texts, um, Dr. Barker refers to as, she has this great phrase, this is temple talk, right? So Enoch, just as a whole, is temple talk. Uh, Secret Book of John, temple talk. The Revelation according to John, temple talk. All of them are describing a way of looking at the universe that's characteristic of someone who's engaged deeply in the mysticism of the temple. So what is this mysticism? So the key thing is that, Liz, as you said, the temple is a microcosm of creation in the same way that the tree is the microcosm of creation. So the kind of symbols of, of an inner reality. Day one, in Genesis terms, is the holy of holies. So the unity beyond time and matter, the world of the angels and the kingdom of God. So smooshing all that together, if anybody's talking about unity, or the pleroma, or the world of the angels, um, the kingdom of God, life eternal, they're referring to what's inside the Holy of Holies, both as a symbol and as an experiential mystical reality. So there's an eternal covenant 
Uh, so covenant is a complex word because it comes to mean one thing after the reign of Josiah, as the law becomes the key thing. But prior to that, the covenant refers to the bonds that hold material creation and the invisible world of unity in which the Father dwells held together. So once tempted back to unpacking re legare, the bind, religion as a way of binding together, um, that every ritual act in the temple context is about re-establishing and, and re-healing this endlessly formed covenant between the invisible world and the material world. Um, so the liturgies, the liturgical rituals in the temple maintain the creation, and the key ritual that did this is the annual ritual on the Day of Atonement, um, which is this, the ritual self-offering of the Lord to renew the eternal covenant and thus heal creation. We'll, we'll dig a bit more into atonement as we go on. So the Last Supper, Holy Communion, remember Dr. Barker's from, uh, she's a Methodist, so she's from the, the Protestant world, and it's um, actually quite common across Christianity these days, but um, this is really the last few centuries, to link communion, the Eucharist, to Passover. Because the Last Supper happens at Passover, so obviously what they're doing is having a Passover meal, so obviously what we do in the Eucharist is a Passover meal. The trouble is that the Seder meal is a really, frankly, rubbish version. Sorry, it's a, it's a rubbish um, metaphor to, to use. The, the number of similarities between a Passover Seder and communion, it, it's you have unbroken bread in a Passover Seder and you have broken bread in the <laughs> Eucharist, right? There, there's several things on the plate in a Passover Seder. There's really only bread and wine in a Eucharist. It's, the the analogy is not particularly good. It's not particularly great with atonement either, but there's, it's far enough back that you can imagine things kind of flowing and shifting and changing through time, but this is where we end up. So, microcosm, holy of holies, which is the key feature of the temple. Everything else is kind of like a kind of a, a porch on the front of the holy of holies, really. Um, and then this notion of liturgy being about endlessly renewing the covenant, and particularly the ritual of atonement. So... Priests operating in the temple are angels, and the angels that we read about in scripture are priests with respect to the renewal of the covenant, and the, the boundary between those two things is blurry. Priests are angels, angels are priests. So, the, particularly, you, this comes out in, you see this in the Revelation quite a lot, the last book of the New Testament, um, there's angel priests and priest angels, and it all kind of swashes together. Humans can become angels by entering the Holy of Holies, and that's what... According to Barker, that's what's being talked about by the term resurrection. It's also what we think about as theosis. So there's some, there's some tricks with this that to get this into the Christianity and make it keep working, there's some tricks that have to get pulled, and we'll get through the tricks. But So the temple is also Eden. It's also the time before humanity gets broken off from the divine. So Adam is the original high priest. Leaving Eden was losing the temple. And the New Testament reverses the story of Eden by bringing Christians back into the original temple, back into the Holy of Holies and renewing the bonds of creation. Okay. So that's the centrality of the temple as the, the key figure and, and what it does and what priesthood means. That's the basics of it. The second thing that Dr. Barker digs at is this idea of there being two gods, of there being the prime God and the secondary God. In So this is in pre-captivity Hebrew religion. Now this is kind of 
interesting because, you know, Judaism is renowned as the world's first monotheistic religion, and, and to do that, of course, there had to be a time when it wasn't a monotheistic religion, and welcome to that time. So, from what Dr. Bach has pieced together, um, Yahweh, Jehovah, yod heh vav was the national god of Israel. Um, or you could think of him as a great angel. <coughs> and all the angels, and there were many angels, there was, uh, there's reasonable evidence to suspect that there were Yahwehs for other cities as well, so that the other cities through the region had their own Yahweh, who was the, the national angel for their city-state. And all of these are the brothers and sisters of each other, and they're all the children of God Most High. God Most High is El Elyon, or just El, if you like. Um, and Yahweh is the, the son of El. So the Lord is the son of the Most High God in the old religion. The terminology Mar may sound fairly familiar. I was going to say, and Mormons love Margaret Barker. Yeah, for Mormons reasons like love this. Margaret Barker. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> So the Lord is the son of the Most High God. So El is also known... So the, the trick is that what happens, and we'll dig into exactly how this goes on, but what happens during the, the period of the captivity as the, the books of the Torah are, are formed into their final form is that there's a redaction process which removes the distinctions, the linguistic distinctions between Yahweh and El. So that by the time we get through that period, that sort of 100 years or so, we're looking at a version of the Old Testament in which it seems there is only one God. And we know that because he says, I, I am the only God and you shall have no other gods before me. Um, if you read enough Gnostic scripture, you know enough to be skeptical of this claim. But yeah, that's... So there's a... There's God Most High, El, El Elyon, and the Ancient of Days, which uh, a phrase in Hebrew you can also translate as um, the antecedent of time. He that is before time itself, which is kind of, I think, a great title, really. And then you've got the Son of the Most High, which is the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel. Okay, so there's these two gods. So when Paul confesses Jesus as Lord, and Lord in English is a translation of Adonai, and Adonai is the term universally used throughout Hebrew religion to refer to Yahweh because you're not allowed to say the name. So it's it's... It's kind of one of these things we've been looking at for all this time and kind of not really maybe comprehending quite what we're reading. When Paul says Jesus is Lord, he's saying Jesus is Yahweh, the great angel. Now this is interesting because the high priest in the first temple period becomes the embodiment of Yahweh for the people. So in entering into the Holy of Holies, the high priest becomes one with the Lord and as he exits, he is the Lord for the people. So the people bow to the high priest as God, as Yahweh. Now, the stuff I was saying before about smushiness, okay, so that this is the same thing as priests are angels and angels are priests. The high priest is the Lord, the Lord is the high priest. Um, this has interesting consequences if we get to the rite of atonement. Uh, all right, and then the, the incarnation into matter is symbolized by the high priest vestment. So the, the vestments represent the four elements of matter. So by clothes, Although the vestments look sort of splendid and heavenly, actually what they're saying is, this is God stepped down into matter and becoming part of material reality. So then the last little piece, really, or at least the last little one I'm going to go into much, is the third divine figure. So there's this um, mysterious name for God, El Shaddai, that we see a few times, a couple of times through the Old Testament. When Abraham meets, when Abraham is a, um, a servant of God Almighty, uh, the 
term for God is El Shaddai. Um, and we don't know what that means. And we don't, so there's a, there's a popular thing that gets done quite a lot where people go, well, Shad in Hebrew means breast, so El Shaddai means heavy-breasted God, or breasted God, or God of many breasts, or, or maybe breast means potency, or maybe breast means fecundity, or maybe it's, but anyway, it's a feminine thing, trust me. We don't actually know what Shaddai doesn't, I don't think that actually works linguistically, but um, it's intriguing. What we get, though, from digging in, by digging into the figure of wisdom um, that shows up in the, the later books in the Old Testament, the wisdom books, um, and looking at the this feminine figure who kind of sporadically appears and disappears kind of in the, in the shadows and margins of the Old Testament, but appears much more vividly in apocryphal books, appears much more vividly in Gnostic scripture, um, and appears in some of the other Near Eastern material, the Ugaritic stuff and whatever, um, around the same time, we see very vividly uh, a spouse for, well, either for Yahweh or for El or for both. The temple in Jerusalem is not the only Jewish temple at this point. There's other Jewish temples in other cities. Um, Samaritans, uh, or as they used to call them, citizens of the state of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. So that northern kingdom we talked about before, that's where the Samaritans are from. So it's called Samaria now, but once upon a time that was Israel. And the big difference of opinion was, should we be worshipping God in the temple, or should we be worshipping God <coughs> on the mountaintop? Um, but then in other places, so there's a Jewish temple in... Elephantine in Egypt. Uh, there's a discovery of a, of a papyrus that discusses various things about um, renovating the, the temple in Elephantine. So these are Hebrew people. Uh, they'd had their temple destroyed at some point by, by mobs, kind of down with the Jews or whatever one does. You know. um, and so they, the, I think it records that this is a temple where both Yahweh and Anat Yahu uh, worshipped. Um, and that Yahu is thought to be the spouse of Yahweh in that temple at least. So there's often a sort of feminine figure partnering with the masculine figure of God. What Barker puts together is that we're looking at a, a theology where there's a mother figure, the Queen of Heaven, also the Great Lady of Jerusalem, um, who's the mother of the High Priest in, it's as a human being. So as the High Priest is enthroned as the Lord, then the High Priest's mother is enthroned as wisdom the great lady of Jerusalem is the queen of heaven. So someone getting recognized as the incarnation of the Lord and their mother getting re recognized as queen of heaven, this doesn't sound like a familiar pattern at all. <laughs> One of the great, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a mystery that Marian devotion appears astoundingly early in Christianity. And so there's lots of, well, you know, she's obviously Isis or something, or maybe she's St. Bridget or, you know, whatever meme you've looked at on Facebook this week. <laughs> but it emerges in Christianity, Marian devotion emerges in Christianity more or less fully formed in about the second century, which is incredibly early for that kind of syncretic business to start happening. So what Barker's pointing out is the reason it appears so early is because these patterns of understanding of the various divine figures and the ways in which they come into human form pre-exists Jesus' life by several hundred years. But Jesus doesn't at this point kind of, hey guys, this is my mother, by the way, she's the queen of heaven. This doesn't appear to be something he says. So it takes a little while for people to start going, you know, if he's the Lord, then surely Mary must be queen of heaven. So it takes a little while for the pattern to emerge, but the pattern's an old pattern. It's an old pattern that's it's deep within Hebrew religion. And it pops out in Hebrew religion in lots of places. This medieval notion of the Shekinah, the presence of God in the temple. 
um, it comes out in Judaism in various forms, still to this day, because it's an old pattern that sort of bubbles along underground and, and keeps coming out. So, keeping with the sh sorry, right? Um, I was curious about the tradition that I carrying over in the tradition of the Catholic Church, where uh, when priests are ordained, the mother kind of gets a pass into heaven there, and also the handoff of Mary to John to John, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you have any thoughts on that, it's more the same pattern, right? <laughs> but so one of the key things is that um, we talk about these things as you know, I'm, I'm acting like this is all a great mystery that's all been lost to us. And yet, a lot of these patterns are uh, within liturgy, and particularly when he, within Eastern Orthodox liturgy, a lot of these understandings are things that they're liturgically, even though they're not, they're not in the Bible, as we have it, right. and they're not necessarily said explicitly, but they're passed on in an enacted way, in both Catholic and Orthodox tradition. But you see a lot of stuff really, a lot of this temple symbolism and these temple patterns are really vividly present in Orthodox liturgy. So this is some of the this sort of secret knowledge that's kind of passed along, you know. It could just be that I'm in the throes of writing a Lexa Randy Lex Credendi essay for seminary, so that could be sort of forefront of my mind, but that's there too. So some other kind of smushy titles um, for the great lady, uh, The Living One, and that's so interesting, we're going to dig into that a little bit later, but The Throne, um, so the, the cherubim throne is in some sense also the lady, because the throne, the, the glory of the Lord descends between the cherubim and the, the Lord is present on the throne and the lady, uh, the Lord is seated on the which is crazy, I mean why would, why would the Queen of Heaven be a chair? It's a completely ridiculous notion. I mean, where on earth would you get an idea like that? That's just completely silly. I mean, clearly that's something we don't carry on into Christianity. <laughs> so the other just curious little thing, um, the the idea of a, I mean, in this crowd, the idea of a female deity in ancient Hebrew religion is probably not that controversial. It is a pretty controversial idea just, just on its face. Um, Ed and I have spoken about this about three conclaves ago or something, but um, these are cool. So these are Judean pillar figurines. I think in excavating ancient Judea, they found around 10,000 of these, <laughs> just around. Um, Before brass. Huh? Before brass, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so there's these two kinds, there's these sort of molded type and there's these kind of like, just kind of, it'll do, that's a little face. Right, so this is, probably just made by people themselves, and this might be something you, you kind of bought in a store. But um, it's pretty obvious that ordinary people living regular lives were venerating the lady in their homes, even if she wasn't allowed to be venerated in the temple at the time. So this is the key, this is a really key thing. Oh, let's hang on, just, all right, so um, I feel like I need to go, we'll just keep playing. Any questions? Take a breath. I'm going to make one comment. Please. The throne makes sense to me a bit because she holds the baby. When you see like the virgin mother with the baby, so she holds the baby. Absolutely. That way she's the throne. Yeah. Uh, the Pieta is the other image that comes to my mind. Yes. Right? Would you also say the throne is a receptacle like a cup? 
Okay. Or am I just going to sex on my No, no, no. That's, yeah, absolutely. It's a chalice, it's a cup, it's a growl, it's a, yeah. Smushy, right? Yeah. The symbols kind of blend into each other if you let it. Is she also like the Merkabah chariot too? Because the chariot is often the throne? Uh, like wisdom brings you <coughs> to the I was wondering what that specifically yeah. Yep. So, in terms of, <coughs> of just a quick thumbnail sketch mystical theology. So we're seeing this core figure of the One, which is pretty much who that hymn at the beginning of the Secret Book of John is addressed to. Also L. So just interestingly, um, the name of God in Islam is Allah, which is an Arabic cognate of the Hebrew L. It's exactly, it's kind of a, it's a version, you could, it, it's probably not ridiculous to at least consider interpreting Islam as a version of that old temple religion which is focused exclusively on this one figure, and not on anybody else, and not on anything else but just that. And that kind of leads out into what Islam looks like. So we've got the one, the most high the ancient of days. We've got the many, the hosts of heaven, the angel host, the Elohim. So that term Elohim again gets smushed in with God because the reformers that redacted the, the Torah didn't like the idea of lots of angels being part of the act of creation because they wanted to kind of narrow it down to a single God. So the Elohim, which is a plural, gets sort of smushed down into being a person, where it's kind of fairly obviously not even grammatically. Um, so the many are also the one. So as an angel host, collectively they represent L. Um, and they show up as light, and they show up as the music in the temple. This is really a, a big part of how Orthodox music works. We have the throne, wisdom, <laughs> this is my, my single, I've been uh, just wanting to tell people this for like ever since I read it the other day. So Barbalo, one of the single most puzzling names apart from all the anatomical names in Secret John as the spirits are making the left nostril and the right testicle. Um, <laughs> apart from that, Barbalo is one of the single most, I mean it's a really significant name and it's often, you know, wh where does it come from? It's kind of mysterious, it doesn't seem to have a, okay so I just, Barker says, and I just love this because it's kind of like, that totally makes sense. But Arba in Hebrew means in four, and Eloah is the feminine form of El. So Ba'arba Eloah, Barbalo. So it's God, feminine, in four. Barbalo emanates the four luminaries who become the place in which the autogenies manifests, and so on and so on and so on, right? Of course, we hate the idea of four angels here in the AJC. That's a ridiculous kind of thing. And the, the idea that wisdom herself may show up whenever the four angels are invoked is a kind of crazy idea. Like, why would you think that? I, this is the, it's such troubling stuff because I think it challenges everything we believe as Joanites. <laughs> okay, so the mother, Barbalo, is the fourfold living one sitting on the throne. So she's also the, present as the four living creatures in Ezekiel's vision. Um, so sitting on the throne becomes resurrection. So you get the vision of unity, um, you see the world from the perspective of unity rather than seeing the world from the perspective of separation, and that's theosis, that's resurrection, that's life eternal, that's seeing the kingdom of God. So if you read every single thing Jesus is recorded to have said about either the kingdom of God or eternal life in any of the Gospels, and you imagine sitting on a throne which enabled you to see the entire world as one in God, united as one in God, and you read every single thing he says, it's just obvious. <laughs> it just all makes perfect sense. 
Um, and then the final point is the servant, the suffering servant from Isaiah, um, which is the high priest offering atonement. Why is the high priest suffering? We'll get to that in a sec. But both Jesus and Melchizedek in Genesis are this suffering servant figure because it reoccurs through history. Each of these things are aspects of spiritual times that are happening outside time in the Holy of Holies, and they get replayed in time multiple times in the course of history. Okay, so that's our basic pattern. Um, we've got the Father, and the Lord, the Son of the Most High, the Mother, the Great Lady, who's the Mother of the Lord, and the Consort of the Father, and then the Angel Host. The Lord is identified <coughs> with the High Priest, is identified with Jesus and Melchizedek, and the Mother is the Virgin Mother who's associated with Mary Theotokos for Christians. Nice and simple, very straightforward. So that's the basic patterns of temple theology. Um, you see, when I said before, I'm trying to accommodate that, that Hebrew world of kind of interpenetrating symbols, fading through symbols and swishing around with Greek, um, it's all through John, there's attempts to do this. And so this is one of my favorites. This is the I am the walrus passage from uh, John 17. <laughs> my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may have faith that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be perfected into one. So having just heard everything I've just told you, that now, I think, makes a, a, an exquisite kind of sense. And it's a way to try to describe in, a, in an analytical language like Greek or English that interpenetrating vision of unity that we see kind of embodied in the Holy of Holies in that divine picture. Just whenever you see glory and, uh, yeah, that's temple talk. Temple talk. It's all temple talk. All right. So I just want to ground, I'll just pause, take a deep breath. Does any comments arise or questions or... That'd be good. Just, just jab John the ribs. There you go. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> okay, so if you've got a version of this on a device, this is the time to pull out your device because this is um, really just a kind of paint by numbers thing. But I've found it helpful in this to kind of ground some of this stuff because I don't know about you, but my grasp of the history of Israel is kind of weak before I started doing any of this stuff. It's all a bit mysterious. So, this is 0 AD, so Jesus is around here. This is uh, 700 BCE back here. This is around 600 BCE, so this is the reign of this king, Josiah. And so the first temple goes from, we don't know how far back, actually, because there's no archaeological evidence and it's not really clear even exactly where it was. Um, but we do know it was destroyed in the Babylonian invasion in 586 BCE, which is about here. Okay? So then there's this period where that part of the world is part of the Babylonian Empire. Um, and the, it's, it's said that the Jews were taken into captivity in Babylon. Um, 
Sure. I mean, really, <coughs> if you're trying to make a people subject to you, then you tend not to take everyone away. You tend to take the high-status people. So you take the aristocrats and the royal family and the priesthood, and you'd pack them all off to Babylon as hostages, and then you'd leave all the people who are keeping the markets running and doing the farming exactly where they were because they know what they're doing, right? This is what happened in Al-Andalus when it became Muslim, and then again when it became Christian again, the common people stayed exactly where they were and all the aristocrats moved. So when historians write about the nation left, they mean the high-status people. What is that? Okay. Is it going to do that helicopter thing where the blade comes parallel through the room? Okay, just, uh, just warn me and I'll try and back. Okay, so the Babylonian captivity lasts to this point where Persia invades Babylon amongst various other places. Cyrus the Great, who's called Cyrus the Great partly because he freed all the captives in Babylon and sent them back to their home countries. So, um, but then uh, Israel and Judea become part of the, the Achmanid, Achmanid dynasty of Persia. Um, which lasts all the way up till about 340 BCE when Alexander the Great conquers the whole territory and it becomes Ptolemaic until the Seleucids take it over and then it kind of gets, then the Maccabean Wars happen and the Hasmonean dynasty takes it over and that's the dynasty of the, the chain of Herods um, so the, the temple is really only destroyed for this little period of like 80 years um, and then this, the beginnings of the Second Temple start here. It, there's a little version of the Second Temple up to the Hasmonean period, and then the Herods begin rebuilding the Second Temple, and it reaches its final form, actually just before the time of Jesus. Right? Um, then the Romans take over, uh, and that goes all the way through to 70 AD when Jerusalem is raised. Um, Jewish diaspora begins in earnest. The Temple is destroyed, um, and that's really the end of the Temple story, for the moment at least. Um, up until about, I don't know, 1947 or whatever, repatriation began. So, the key thing to understand is this period here. This is the kind of critical bit, uh, which I'll get to in a sec because I've ordered these in a strange order. So just, a, just some little things to kind of point out. Stuff I said about the stuff that you think you understand about, or at least I thought I understood about the way the Old Testament formed, turns out to be largely bogus. So the books of the Old Testament, um, so we start with that pink box down there. Uh, the oldest books in the Old Testament um, are formed during the monarchic period. So 745 BCE to 586, the, just up to the point, um, the, the point of the Babylonian invasion. So that's the first two-thirds of the book of Psalms, Amos, 1 Isaiah, um, the, the first book, the first part of Isaiah, uh, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, or JJSK as I like to call them, because um, they always appear as a group, um, and then the beginnings of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5 to 28. So I mean that stuff, those early books at the top of that list, is all that kind of, that's all the riffraff down the end of the Old Testament, and I, I don't know, I don't even remember the names of most of those books, they're not kind of in my brain most of the time, but that's the earliest stuff we've actually got his early versions of those books. So then what forms next is during the period of exile in Babylon. So that's Obadiah, uh, it's the final form of JJSK, Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings. The rest of the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Jeremiah, 2nd Isaiah and Ezekiel um, happens during the exile and then as the exiles return um, from captivity, 
uh, under the under Persian rule, then we get the Torah is, reaches its final form. So there's pre-existing scriptures that go into forming Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, and Numbers, but they're only put together in their final form, and the final redactions done over them to more or less the version we have them now during that Persian period. They don't pre-exist the rest of it. Um, so there's interesting stuff. I mean, there's, there's stuff in uh, some of the Qumran material, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and some of Enoch, which refers to versions of the creation story and versions of the history of Israel which don't have any Moses in it. There's no Egyptian, um, there's no escape from Egypt. It's more or less the version of Israel history, the history of Israel that we're used to, it just doesn't have any Moses stories particularly. It's still got Abraham, still got Noah, still got all that stuff, but it doesn't have any Moses. So there's earlier versions of these things. Moses was kind of uh, inserted, perhaps, at some point, um, potentially by a, a group of people who had a particular interest in this figure and what he was saying. So we tend to treat Moses as this incredibly formative figure in the history of Hebrew religion. He clearly is, I mean, it's clearly a pivotal voice, right? It gives Hebrew religion the, the form that we currently know it as. But there is a period prior to that Persian period in which he was not a key voice, actually. Um, so the, the story of how that material, uh, at least in, in, the, in the Bible version of things, how that material enters in is, is kind of cute and interesting, and I'll get to it next, but... So in the post-exile Hellenistic period under Ptolemaic rule, you get Job, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, Jonah, and the last little bit of Psalms. And then the final bit, during the Hasmonean Kingdom, Daniel, 1-4 Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, Esther, and the Wisdom of Solomon. Um, which is all really quite late. So stuff still kept happening, edits to things still kept happening all the way up into the first century, I think, but that's the kind of dates at which those books form. So you said, uh, what's, the, what's, the, what's the date when Daniel comes around? Between 164 and 48 BCE. Okay. I was just wondering about Sorry, the, you know, any, any, any overlap with the Romans and, you know, the abomination of desolation and kind of, you know, in the, in the same way that, you know, you've got uh, uh, New Testament prophecies about the destruction of the temple that are obviously written when the temple, you know, when the temple uh, was destroyed. in the process of being destroyed or had been destroyed in order to kind of read it back into the past to say we saw this coming kind of thing. So, you, you know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, Daniel and the desecration of the temple. So Maybe... I mean, by 4 BC, well, the boxes has been in period, but the dates say 154 to 4 BC, so 4 BC is within Roman rule. Yeah. yeah. But not after the destruction, so. No. But it, it, you know, it would kind of fit if somebody, you know, came into the holiest spot of your house and started, you know, leaving their gum wrappers everywhere. <laughs> Love to leave time for discussion, he says. Cool, they say. Um, this this Yesiah guy, like, what did he get up to? So, um, what would have been really terrific is if I'd included the reference <coughs> where this is. I'm going to have to get back to you on it. It's 1 Samuel 17, I think. It's a little passage that lasts for less than a chapter. Um, so, what happens is Josiah says, hey, let's renovate the temple. It's looking a little tatty. Um, and so they start renovating the temple. And uh, while it's being renovated, one of the priests, who I think is called Hilkia or Hilikia, um, like it, it almost literally says, uh, in the back of a closet, 
in the back room of the temple, the priest Hilkiah discovered a book. <laughs> it's the ancient second-hand bookstall. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the second-hand bookstall um, yeah. story again, right? Like, in this, in this discarded piece of furniture, I found this great book. And he brings it to the king, and it's essentially an early version of Deuteronomy. So it's a book of the law where it says what the, pe- the way the people are meant to behave. And the king is uh, simultaneously ashamed and kind of excited, uh, I think, because clearly what's described in the book, the version of the religion that's described in the book, is not what the people are doing. Now, this wasn't a period where everyone got distressed about provenance or asked about who'd written it or whatever. It, it, it was just kind of like, here's this book, it's in the temple, it must be holy. Holy crap, it says a bunch of things that we mustn't do that we're doing a lot of. Uh, what do we do? So he takes it to the king. The king basically shows up in front of the people and says, Guys, I'm really sorry. We've been getting it wrong. We need to fix it. So what does he do? So he, so from the description of what he does to temple worship, we can infer what temple worship looked like before he got started. Um, so he burned uh, articles in the temple made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. So in other words, he removed anything to do with the hosts of heaven. Um, he burned the Asherah poles. So at some point there were Asherah poles, like all over the damn place. There was Asherah poles in the temple, there was Asherah poles on the tops of mountains where people went to worship. So Asherah in this context is the lady. Is I hear that's legal now in Colorado. I've heard that. <laughs> it's sacramental. <laughs> he desecrated the high places and all the altars in other cities from which we know that worship was offered in high places and, and altars in other cities. He got rid of all the mediums and the household gods. Um, and so some of the household gods we saw in those statues we looked at earlier. Um, he removed the chariot of the sun, the true menorah, and the anointing oil from the temple. So there was rigmarole that got removed. It was business. Um, and that business was all significant business in First Temple religion. Um, there's reasons to suspect that the chariot of the sun also represented the lady, but the lady was a solar goddess and she was worshipped towards the east in the face of the rising sun. Um, there's solar disc representations of, of goddesses in that area for, for quite a while. But the anointing oil is the really big deal. The anointing oil, or chrism as we call it these days, um, is the way in which new high priests were made. Um, and in the old religion, the high priest and the king were the same person. So it was a royal high priest which we see in Solomon and we see in Melchizedek. And we see kind of reiterated in a lot of the mythological patterns around Jesus. So if you take the anointing oil out, you can't really make high priests anymore. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, so in a, he basically removes everything to do with any other divine figure except for Yahweh. He removes the basic function of the high priesthood, which is to enter into the Holy of Holies and engage in the, the rite of atonement. Uh, so he basically overturns these really pivotal things that made Hebrew religion what it is, as far as we can tell, um, and created this kind of new thing. Almost as soon as he does it, so Josiah does this, it, it takes several goes to really kind of root out as much of this as he possibly can. He engages on raids into na- neighboring Jewish kingdoms in order to perpetrate the same reforms on those kingdoms. Um, his son takes over from him, and during his son's or his grandson's reign, I think, it's, which is very short, the Babylonians invade, the whole priesthood is scooped up along with the, the aristocracy and taken to Babylon. And what they take with them is this vision of this new Jewish religion. But as I said, the common people stay exactly where they've always been. 
with the same ideas about what their religion was, you know, because the king can march around and burn things, but that's not going to stop people believing what they believed, or holding as sacred what they held sacred. So... Just ask the iconoclasts. Exactly. Exactly. So this new religion basically gets taken away to Babylon, where it takes on some of its final forms. That's not a Dragon Ball Z reference, just in case anyone knows Hebrew religion goes super cyan in Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a Pokemon reference. I'm sorry. Mushing up my... And then they return with this... Okay, so from the common... That's long enough. That timeline is long enough to mean it's the grandchildren of the original captives who are returning to meet with the grandchildren of the original people who were there at the time of Yesiah, or the great-grandchildren at the time of Yesiah. With a, with a new religion that looks like Hebrew religion, but is fundamentally different in some of its most essential characteristics from Hebrew religion. Now, it might be, I think, that if that happened to you, you might start carrying on secret versions of the old religion in private and secrecy. Some of you might even leave town and go to other towns where other people who remember the old religion still lived and were carrying it on in more or less the old way. And you might engage in some fairly dualistic thinking between what was going on in this temple, as they call it, versus what's meant to go on in the temple in the old days. It's pretty easy to see how that basic schism in Judean society leads to the kind of depiction of the real father and son that we see in something like the secret book of John and the fake God, the fake single God who said... Who Braze to the heavens, there is no other God before me, um, in this lower heaven that's not the real heaven, right? In other words, in a temple that's not the real temple, sitting within a holy of holies that's not really the holy of holies. So that's exactly, I mean, where do these scriptures come from? They, come, they don't mostly come from Judea, they mostly come from places like Alexandria, which is part of the Jewish diaspora, where some of these old traditions are still maintained. So we're looking at... At this point, during the reign of Josiah, the, Hebrew, the tradition of Hebrew religion branches into these two key branches. And one of those branches becomes what we now know as Rabbinic Judaism, which places the text of the Torah, the written word of the law, adherence to practice and tradition as the key aspects of wisdom, as, the, as what actually does, as, I mean, Greg put it really beautifully in that last talk, the keeping of the law is itself constantly renewing the covenant and constantly um, recreating the world and healing the break between the divine and the world. So that's a mosaic vision of what Hebrew religion is about. And then we've also got these temple traditions, which kind of go into the wild and hiding, um, which retain a vision of the same thing, of maintaining the bonds of the covenant, but by doing it in the old way through ritual and mysticism and this sort of uh, tradition of theosis. So all these things fall under what Barker refers to as temple talk whenever they get written down. And that includes, oh yeah, wisdom literature, apocalyptic literature, Enoch, 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 Enoch man, I tell you. Um, all the Gnostic stuff, pretty much. And is that it? I think that's it. Um, so what we call esoteric <laughs> traditions in the Near East are largely temple traditions gone into the wild. Um, I think I'm missing one. Early Christian theology and practice. Right, yes, indeed. So that shows in Christianity. So that's 
to me, this is super interesting because the self-image that mostly Christians took on several centuries after this was versions of um, supersessionism where Judaism was the Old Testament, and Christ has brought us the New Testament, and Christianity kind of replaces Judaism as the chosen people, um, and these kind of dumb, frankly dumb ideas, right? Um, or that Christianity is a completely different religion that's got nothing to do with Judaism. Um, well, what we see in this picture is that Judaism, as we've known it for the last two and a half thousand years, um, is a branch of an older version of Hebrew religion that preserves key aspects of that older version and changes key practices in that older version. <coughs> and then alongside that, out of that original, that original wellspring, back in sort of 650 BCE, we get this range of temple traditions, of wisdom traditions and esotericism, which leave behind some of the stuff that rabbinic Judaism preserves, but then maintain some of the liturgical and praxeological elements of first temple religion, which aren't maintained by rabbinic Judaism. So these two are not mother and daughter, but they're sister, sets of sister traditions, which sort of simultaneously draw first temple tradition in different forms out into the modern world. So I, to me, that's a more interesting picture. I think that's kind of cool. Um, uh, just whoever owns this laptop, your Rivera antivirus definitions are out of date. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that's necessary for me to know now. Later. Uh, I often have differences of opinion with software about what's important for me to know quite when. Oh, sorry, this is the controversial last bit, Pythagoras. Um, <laughs> so, um, let's see. What have we got here? Is that? That's oh, and DS for Hebrews, right. Yes, okay. Let's move on. Uh, this is a quote from Temple Mysticism, one of Dr. Barker's two most readable books. So Temple Mysticism and Temple Theology here. If, you, if you're going to get a Margaret Barker book and embark on, it's pick one of those two or we'll get both. They're both quite thin. Anything that's more than about, um, sorry, I only talk metric, more than about half a centimeter thick, don't, don't go near it. It's too, they're too terrifying. It's brain hurty. Stick to a little thin ones. As the church defined itself, there was the need to distinguish between Christianity and Gnosis. Early Gnostic thought had much in common with temple mysticism, suggesting that pre-Christian Gnosticism had its roots in the older faiths, and it's kind of an obvious, a fairly obvious observation. So there's this sort of controversial idea that Pythagoras and the system of thought we call Pythagoreanism um, is temple thought. Uh, so there's an old... I think one of Pythagoras's biographers uh, writes that he travelled widely, widely in his youth and spent some time in Syria, and Syria at that time would have encompassed Jerusalem. Um, he's a contemporary of Ezekiel, uh, so he was initiated into the sacred operations that are performed in many parts of Syria, um, which more or less sounds like an initiation in <coughs> some kind of mystery religion of some sort. <coughs> so the similarities between a lot of what you get in Pythagoras and then what you see in the Timaeus... Um, from Plato sounds a lot like the kind of vision of the world that we're seeing in, in the, first, the first temple in Jerusalem. Now, this isn't, as Greg was saying before, none of this is linear, it's not like this leads to that and that's the end of it. It's, it crosses backwards and forwards because um, if temple religion influences Pythagoras, Pythagoras influences Plato, Plato influences the Neoplatonics, at the same time, Jerusalem and, and the whole of Israel and Judea are ruled by Hellenistic, um, Hellenistic culture, 
Increasingly, Jews are beginning to think in Greek categories. So there's Greek thought influencing Hebrew thought, and that's going backwards and forwards through this entire period from like 500 BCE all the way up to 200 AD. CE, so stick to one dating scheme, Tim, and just keep using it. That would be the best thing. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's super controversial, but uh, one of the descriptions of Pythagoras talks about at the center of the four elements there lies a certain unitary fiery cube. Which the, the similarity between that and the Holy of Holies is, of course, completely coincidental. <laughs> also, I just like to point out, you know, like this has absolutely nothing to do with the opening of the uh, Joanite Eucharist. There's absolutely no similarities to invoking four archangels who represent the four elements and then saying from the portal of air to the portal of water, from the portal of fire to the portal of earth, from the center of power to the encompassing adamant, let this sanctuary be established within the sacred flame. That's got nothing to do with anything. This is all just complete coincidence. Um, there's really no way to make this line up at all. So how did we learn that before? It's a, well, I think this is the interesting thing. I mean, what she's kind of pointing to is that there are kind of deep resonant symbolic patterns in this tradition. And you see them pop out. And the, but they don't pop out because people rediscover the history of it and decide to go do it. They pop out because they're there in the, <clears throat> I mean, veneration of the great lady just keeps reappearing and reappearing and reappearing and reappearing and reappearing and it gets suppressed and it reappears and it gets suppressed and it reappears and it doesn't matter what you do, it keeps coming back. Right? This stuff, all these things keep reappearing and they're there because you could argue they're this kind of symbolic imprints in the tradition and they get re-expressed over and over and over again. So there's some kind of fundamental symbolic truth to it. Well, there's also, I was going to say, there's also a commonality of experience. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I might have read Gnostic scripture and say, okay, there's now a name for, you know, there's now a name for what I am, but I didn't become a Gnostic by reading scripture. I read scripture and found in the symbolism um, something that resonated or mirrored the experience that I, experience. I, I already, already had. It, right. it contextualizes it. So, um, you know, in terms of an underground stream or, a, you know, those kind of things where these things keep... Um, popping up is because I think they're common to human experience rather than... Yeah, yeah. That's also true. Uh, I'm not going to read that. Um, <clears throat> so just a couple of key things. Um, the, so two, two liturgical practices are really widespread through Christianity. I think you could say one's baptism and the other one's Eucharist. Other things come and go depending on where you are, but those two things stay reasonably constant with certain Protestant exceptions, because there's certain Protestant exceptions to any rule you care to make, really. But <laughs> um, It's often thought that baptism stretches back to the mikvah, to the purification bath, and that's because John talks in terms of purification uh, when, he, when he baptizes people. Um, but actually, the four key elements of baptism, that it's got to be in living water, that you're anointed after baptism, that you're given a new name, that you're vested in a baptismal robe that's white, those four elements are all elements of the initiation of a new high priest in the first temple. So baptism recalls the investiture of the initiation of a new high priest. Um, so in other words, I, I, think, I think Pope Benedict, maybe John Paul II, um, said, you know, we talk a lot about the ordination of priests, but really the most significant initiation of a Christian is their baptism, and that's, that's really the fullness of Christian initiation. Kind of like, well, they might have been onto something, you know? Well, there's the concept of the, the priesthood of the, the baptized, and the there's, there's also the fact that every, every, every vocation is held to extend um, 
uh, from baptism. And I mean, there's numerous, you know, commissions and groups from various denominations that have looked at, you know, where where's the root and you know what's the absolute minimum for ordination and some people said well you know you could if somebody was baptized you could ordain somebody directly as a priest rather than all this other stuff because because you know it doesn't extend from having been a deacon before or having right. been an acolyte before right. it extends from the the right at the beginning Rest being the baptism, the, the baptism. Yeah. so the no one's no one settled that by the way but. the problem with baptism being an initiation of high priests is because as we learned earlier you saw it took the anointing oil from the temple so that you couldn't make high priests um, the key ingredient of anointing oil, of chrism, is myrrh. What do the three wise men show up with at Jesus' birth? Gold, the thing that coated the inside of the Holy, Holy of Holies. Frankincense, the key ingredient in the incense used by the priests. Um, the clouds of incense over the cherubim throne was where the glory of the Lord appeared. And myrrh, the key ingredient in anointing oil. This is, of course, a complete coincidence. That's just a silly story. But um, it's funny how things line up, don't you think? <laughs> I also love that the three magi came from the east, um, which is a phrase in Hebrew that can also mean from ancient times. It's the same way, if it's an idiom that you can use either way. Um, so just a little thing, I just, uh, I like that, you know, my geography is a bit weak, but just in case yours is as weak as mine. So that's where Bethlehem is, and that's where Babylon is. That's the ancient city of Babylon. So pretty much exactly east of Bethlehem. And Persia's just east again. So the magi came from somewhere over this way. Um, where did the captives go? If the anointing oil was anywhere, where would it have been? <laughs> so that's a thing. So perhaps there's like an, an, an archive of the temple tradition that might have been kept by somebody in Babylon and then returned, or at least that's what they're trying to point to. That's the kind of symbolic resonance they're trying to invoke. The last little point of, uh, of that anointing that happens at baptism, um, we do it with the sign of the cross. Now, of course, the ancient Hebrews wouldn't have done it with the sign of the cross, um, it's traditional to anoint the head of the, the high priest with the Hebrew letter Tav, right? Um, now, as we all know, Tav is shaped like that, right? So it's nothing like a cross. Or is it? <laughs> so at the time of the first temple, Hebrew was written in a script called Paleo-Hebrew. So the, the, the Tav is a cross, right? It's similar to a tor in Greek, um, but kind of it looks like a diagonal cross. Um, Paleo-Hebrew gets replaced with a new script um, that we know as modern Hebrew, but that script was originally called Aramaic, and the reason why they wrote it in Aramaic was that was the way you wrote things in the Babylonian Empire. So this is literally the language of the captivity, <laughs> and this is literally the language that was the, the way of writing Hebrew that was, that was before the captivity. So that was the way you would have done a tab in the first temple. That's kind of cool. The second big ritual is the Eucharist. So, Bach is making the claim that the Eucharist recalls a couple of things. It recalls the Atonement Liturgy. Um, so this happens on the Day of Atonement every year, which I think is Yom Kippur. Mm -hmm. Somebody? Thanks, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, That's great. Thanks very much. Um, the High Priest acts alone in the Atonement Liturgy. There are two goats. One goat gets um, consecrated as... So the, the word gets translated in English um, in, the, in the OT these days. Uh, is that one, one goat is consecrated um, for Azazel and one is consecrated for the Lord, but the preposition in Hebrew can mean as, as well. Mm. So, remembering the kind of smushy correspondence world of, of ancient Hebrew, one goat becomes Azazel, the head of the fallen angels, and the mm. other goat becomes the Lord. 
So the Azazel goad is what you'd technically and quite legitimately call a scapegoat because it takes on the sins of all the people of Israel and then they don't kill it, they drive it into the wilderness. Interesting. So you're not destroying sin, you're just shooing it. <laughs> and then the goat that is the Lord is sacrificed, the blood is sprinkled over the altar, and then the central parts of the goat are eaten raw with sour wine by the priests. Yeah. Tasty. So <laughs> but think about what's happening, right? The high priest is the Lord, and the goat now is the Lord. So the goat and the high priest and the Lord are one thing. So when the high priest sacrifices the goat, he's sacrificing himself and the Lord. The Lord is acting as the high priest to self-sacrifice. He's making the great atonement sacrifice. This language seems strangely familiar somewhere. I was going to add in the sour wine and the, uh, the sponge and the vinegar. The sponge vinegar, exactly. Exactly. Precisely. So then the other little touch point for the Eucharist is the shoe bread. So these were loaves of bread that were molded, possibly with, with a face on them. Um, that's not entirely clear. Uh, and left on the table of the presence in front of the Holy of Holies. And they represent the presence of God, or the Shekinah, or wisdom, perhaps. So the bread is itself wisdom. Um, and that was left there for seven days in the old temple. And on the, on the Sabbath, I think the priests ate last week's shoe bread and then put out the new shoe bread. So we've got the body and blood representing the Lord, and we've got the bread representing the great lady, and we've some uh, smushy, smushy, look, ta-da! <laughs> and there's the story of Melchizedek who brings wine and bread for Abraham in the Old Testament. So, and who's a priest of El Elyon? Exactly. He was a priest of El Elyon, and as Paul tells us, Christ is our <laughs> great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, of course, this is all made up. It makes no sense at all. Um, I should have, there's a Surgeon General's warning on the start of any talk about Margaret Barker that this is a brain virus. <laughs> you can't escape, and I'm really sorry that I've infected you before, um, before giving an appropriate warning. Now there's a warning? <laughs> sorry? And now you warn us. <laughs> what was that comment about the vinegar? Uh, when, in the canonical Gospels, when uh, Jesus is on the cross and he's thirsty, they basically skewer a sponge with vinegar or possibly sour wine and hold it up to him to, to drink. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, some have... Some one, of, one of the images on the Megaloscoma is the sphere yeah. with, uh, with the sponge on it. Right. Not that that means it's significant in any yeah. way. Certainly. <laughs> so, like, obviously, <clears throat> considered separately or together, those pieces don't linearly add up to the right of the Eucharist as we have it today. But if you think about these things being, we're talking about a period in which this stuff is maintained orally, handed from person to person, in diaspora over 700 years, right? So it's not difficult for things which were once practiced in public and once practiced out in the open to start to smoosh and meld together. Yeah, what's interesting is how you described with the um, sacrificial uh, go, uh, with the, the um, it's given energy, it's blood being sprinkled as a, as a specific offering to a spirit, and then the body being cooked and eaten for the members is pretty much what is done in like modern like uh, voodoo type. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and the fact that that has become like a sacred like way to take care for your community and the spirits that watch over yep. your community is interesting. Is it that is interesting, yeah. that's right. So I think, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of difficulty with Paul talking about Christ, Jesus as the great atoning sacrifice. 
And part of the difficulty people have with it is we're thinking of animal sacrifice in the context of the Second Temple, in which animals were sacrificed kind of as a payment and then burnt to be given to the Lord. But if what Paul's talking about is this kind of atonement, it's this kind of ritual where it's the self-giving of the Lord, it's the, the self-sacrifice of the Lord on behalf, you know, the, the priest as the Lord sacrificing on behalf of the people to reweave those bonds of, of the covenant between the visible and invisible worlds again and again and again, year after year. Um, it lends it a more interesting character. So what this is implying, I think, is that what we're doing in the Eucharist is that work. And one of the reasons it's such a, such a central issue in Christianity is that it's a kind of an open source version of, of the temple. It makes a, a huge, um, maybe this is on my next slide, so maybe I should just say it if I put the slide up. Yeah, okay, there's the main slide. Okay. okay, so really that's great, but why does it actually matter? Who cares? Um, so this is kind of why it matters to me and why I think it, it is an interesting thing for Joanites to consider. Um, one is that this, this image of the practice of the first temple and the mystical theology of the first temple, I think, gives us a common ancient trailhead for Christianity, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, together. But they, they kind of all flow out of that original place and then diversify and take on other influences and shift and change and reconnect and intersect you know, multiple times through the last 2,000 years. Um, it gives us deeper origins for the baptism in the Eucharist than Jesus having dinner with a bunch of mates in an upper room and getting dumped in a river by John because he felt like it, um, to ancient rituals of the royal priesthood going stretching back at least another thousand years before the time of Christ. Um, it gives us back the figure of the lady and the very complex, rich, multi-layered symbolic significance of that figure. So she's not a simple figure at all. In fact, in some, sometimes you could argue that what we see in a lot of Gnostic scripture is the various resonances and layers of that one figure pulled apart into multiple divine figures. Sophia and Babylo and Epinoia, Protonoia, Pronoia, etc., 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 are all different versions of what the lady becomes in later thought. It connects together theosis as a mystical reality, resurrection as a scriptural reference, and then what we do in liturgy as a as a single process, which is all woven together. One of the, okay, so this is just, some of you have probably heard me give a, a talk about the thought of Mary Collo, um, videos from the Sydney Conclave. So Dr. Collo looks at the use of the temple as a symbol all the way through the Gospel of John. We start off with Jesus working to kind of invalidate the, the liturgy of the second temple, the practices of the second temple, to say that God is not worshipped in the temple, God is worshipped by hanging out with me, for I am the Lord, right? And he gets the disciples, he works with the disciples until they're prepared to confess that he is the Lord. So by in proximity to him, that's offering correct praise to the Lord. And then he hands that over to the community in that scene of the crucifixion, so the temple becomes the community. Wherever two or more are gathered, there I am also, right? So... That symbol is a really compelling symbol that structures the whole narrative of the Gospel of John. And this stuff, I think, makes sense of why it's such a key symbol. What he's saying is that what you're seeing happening in the Second Temple isn't, that's not redemption, this is not salvation, that's not what's going to get you there. What's going to get you there is this core. And because we've now had 700 years to work out how to do it without being in the temple, <laughs> let me hand you on some of, this, uh, some of this business we've been working on. Here's some we prepared earlier. Um, there's tons of other stuff that I think comes out of it, but that's what's important to me. 
I'd love to hear how that lands with everybody else and kind of if there's anything particular that, that comes out of it for you or what resonates. We have maybe 10 minutes. I have two Ten minutes. Please. Uh, you know, the, the cube thing, um, the Holy of Holies, it's, it sounds very much like the Kaaba in Mecca. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, That's a complete coincidence, of course. Right. And, and I have a question. So, you know, the royal priesthood. Um, in that logic, Josiah will be a priest and, a, and the high priest and a king as well. And why would he undermine his own authority by destroying the high priesthood? It's a good question. It was not. <coughs> I mean, the tradition of the royal high priest might have died out prior to the Josiah, and we don't know. Mm. The difficulty in piecing any of this together is there's no archaeology. There's no primary sources other than the books of the Old Testament. And everything we've got from the Old Testament is altered by followers of Josiah's reforms to conform to their worldview. So if you read the Old Testament, it very clearly says, the law of Moses says, the king and the high priest must never be the same guy. They always have to be separate. Which isn't necessary to say unless, probably, unless they were one person prior to that. But it, it, So Josiah might have been... It, it might have just been that he felt what he was doing was more important than his own status. Mm. Possibly. Sure. Occasionally you get rulers who are motivated by doing the right thing. I don't know. It's a good point, though. Yeah, you probably honestly believe there's only one God and people shouldn't be worshipping a female deity and that the right way to live was by a law and not through theosis. Right? It's a lot neater. Yeah, it's a lot neater. It's easier. Well, it um, seems neater until you start trying to write the regulations down. Yes. But so the, the temple theology privileges gnosis. You get resurrection, theosis, Enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, comes from having a visionary experience of sitting right. on the throne. Right. So you 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 experience divine unity. You see the world from God's eyes. Right. Uh, and it's not just a high priest; it's everyone. Right. And that is that is how we become better people. That is how we become. That is the right kind of way to do religion is to see this as gnosis. Would that be correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's the right way to put it. And I, I mean, I think one of the things you're seeing. I mean, this is all, I mean, so much of this is conjecture, right? Yeah. And the reason I go along with it is I go, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you can't prove most of it. But it, it's not that difficult to imagine, again, 700 years oral tradition happening in diaspora, multiple local temples. It's not that difficult to imagine an Alexandrian tradition where those rites which were once reserved for the high priest become more commonly passed around amongst an inner circle of initiates. Um, Maybe Jesus is himself a heretic from his own tradition uh, and decides to make it more widespread that even the people that handed it to him made it. And he initiated his inner circle of disciples and kind of said, spread it around a little. See where this goes. Yeah. Well, if the priests were all gone, who else would be doing it? Sorry? If the priests were all gone because they were captured, who else would be doing it? Well, exactly. That's true. That's true. And also to clarify, if I got it right, I think I think Barker says the, the priests are angels, right? Um, but I, I think she believes, or or she believes in, in temple theology. All of us have sort of an Valentinian sense or some esoteric uh, tradition sense. Everybody is actually an angel as well. We have a heavenly double, we have right. a higher self who's an angel, and then we have a, a an earthly us. And the priests were able to the priests in particular when they served in the temple were able to combine the two. Yeah, and a kind of sort of reintegration. But yes, you might. Yeah. And then that gets open source and be like, hey, you don't have to be a priest. You, you know, go become that angel, bring down the higher self, bring yourself up, however you want to phrase it. Yeah. And then it gets worked into Valentinianism, which of course that's very Valentinian. Right, right, right. Yeah, you see echoes of it in different forms. The thing, 
the other thing I love about the smushiness and the amount of time, and, and you know, you can just imagine the diversity it takes on. There's not necessarily lots of people checking whether they're getting it the same way as everyone else, yeah. right? So there's schools of this probably in Syria, up in Damascus. There's schools of this probably as far north as what we now think of as Turkey. There's schools in Egypt, all the way down through the deserts of Egypt. There's schools over in Arabia that are all got different versions of this. There's Jews in diaspora everywhere around that whole region. So and yeah, so different places are probably working slightly different versions of it, and people are traveling backwards and forwards, and it takes on multiple different forms. And so it becomes Kabbalah, it becomes mystical Islam, it becomes... It takes all these different shapes. Ed? Uh, so, just to advertise for my talk that's coming up, which Please. will not be as entertaining as this one. Uh, <laughs> that's just not true. I think, uh, I think we might see an example of fiery cubes and some of the stuff I'm talking about. <laughs> I, like fire. I love a good fire cube, right? And uh, possibly this is another example of, the, of uh, the temple tradition gone into the wild. We'll be, talk, I'll, I'll be talking a little bit about how Jehovah um, manifests in the, uh, in the bridal chamber in the Gospel of Philip, um, which seems to fit a little bit into this. Absolutely. But I had, so the, um, the bridal chamber for Bach is the Holy of Holies, obviously. But. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it, there's some fit over there. It's going to be a little complicated, but anyway because um, the Gospel of Philip doesn't lend itself to analysis very well. A couple of questions. The Temple of Theology informing uh, some of Jesus' teachings, what does she think about Q or Kella? And what does she think about the theory of, uh, the old German theory of retroactive editing? So you'll have to unpack both questions for me. Oh, Q, so Kella, the, the collection of sayings oh, the the that, that the synoptics are, are built upon. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't remember looks at other Barker heads. I don't remember her saying anything about Kabbalah, actually. That might be important. Yeah, yeah it might be. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm positive. She must, right? Oh, she must, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. You, you yeah. can't talk about this stuff. Yeah. She's talking about, if she's talking about Genesis, Rabar, and the yeah. Apocalypse of Weeks, then she must be, be able to, anyway. Yeah. yeah. She wants to just talk with Enoch. And, and some of the ideas of, of, of redaction theory says that a lot of the, 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 the Gospels, the canonical Gospels, were added onto or edited retroactively right. to include ideas that got put into the, the religion, uh, especially ritual ideas, right. after Jesus does his whole thing. Definitely, yeah. I think that's And a lot of the stuff that gets added later is ritual details, like the uh, Eucharist and all that stuff. Just to keep everyone on the same page. page. <clears throat> I, think it's, I think that's important. I think it's also quite possible that during that, that vexing period, the first, the first couple of centuries CE, it's pretty likely, I think, that versions of what we're calling the New Testament were redacted to bring them more into harmony with what other Jews yeah. were saying so that Christianity, it's likely that Christianity adapted itself to fit more with other Jewish sects in diaspora, at when, least early in, on. In first century, century CE? First century. Well, there was no differentiation between Christianity and Judaism. Exactly. Well, yeah. in, fact, uh, in fact, they uh, even uh, John Chrysostom is whining about it centuries later. Right. <laughs> um, so, um, such a whiner. Yeah, well, at the time I said. Golden tongue whiner. <laughs> but, yeah, um, and he, not even Paul uses the term Christian. It doesn't get used no. until after Paul's death. No, but no, it's not until Antioch. Yeah. So, uh, this is it's probably more accurate, I would argue, to think of Christianity as a version of Judaism. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, how, how literal is she taking these lineages of Melchizedek, by the way? Since there was something you said that made me think she was taking them a little bit. Literally. The idea of what the, it was exactly the priesthood said. after the order of Melchizedek? Yeah, yeah, Melchizedek. Uh, she's saying, I mean, she's talking about a, a symbol repeating. Yeah, okay. So <coughs> the lineage is not meant to be. Not the idea there. that there's a line, lineal okay. genealogy or anything like that or any kind of apostolic succession style thing. Not at all. 
but it's recapitulating that symbol of Melchizedek right. multiple times through history. Okay. Yeah. I, um, I sort of question about um, the highest God. Uh -huh. and it's kind of confusing because it seems like he starts off as El Elyon, and then right. later on he becomes Yahweh. And then even later than that, he's like sort of Yahweh, but not really. In Barker's thought or in the in the Bible? No, I'm talking about... Um, or for real. When I said later on, I was thinking more of Western esotericism and magic, right. specifically. Right. When the highest god is petitioned and you use the tetragrammaton, mm. but it's not really clear as to who or what he is, because you have all these other names. Exactly, yeah. So I think, <clears throat> I guess what... Barker would argue up to the point of Jesus is that you're dealing with an early period where El Elyon, or El, the Ancient of Days, God Most High, is one deity, and Yahweh is the second deity. The, the child. Um, the child, the son of the Most High. Then, in the Babylonian captivity period, as the Torah is formed, the texts are redacted so that it's a bit like actually Yahweh and El Elyon are kind of like Clark Kent and Superman in the Old Testament. It's actually they don't generally appear together in the same passage, so that's part of sort of source hypothesis stuff. Um, so they kind of, but they kind of, it's you know strongly implied that they're the same person, right, through the through the Old Testament. Um, so that becomes so then in rabbinical Judaism, Yahweh is the preferred term. Adonai, the Lord, is the preferred term. So that's trucking on through rabbinic Judaism as we go out through the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 12th, 14th <coughs> centuries of the Common Era. At the same time, the no, Christian tradition... Lord. Sorry? That's, that just means Lord, so it's like... It's, it's not yeah, but it's, but it's used specifically to stand in for the Tetragrammaton. And, yeah. yeah, so um, Jews at that, or still I think, say Adonai, where it says mm -hmm. God have Arpeh in the, in the text of Hebrew, it's pronounced Adonai. To just be Lord. Yeah. Um, so, simultaneously with that, we've got this Christian tradition emerging, which has the Father and the Son, and that's not lined up exactly with anything in the Old Testament precisely. It's just kind of left there as a vague thing. So, we have God Most High and Christ the Lord kind of trucking along. <laughs> so, you've got mm -hmm. Christian esoteric tradition emerging through here, and then at this critical period, as Greg was telling us in the last session, Christian esoteric tradition and Kabbalah kind of intersect around the 13th, 14th centuries, at which time now everyone's going, okay, so what's the Hebrew word that we use to talk about? Oh, right, the Tetragrammaton, because that's what the, I mean, we're originally Jews, right, and this is a Jewish tradition, and the Jews are telling us that that's God Hevape, so that must be who we're talking about. Kind of. <laughs> By that stage, that's sort of true, but it's sort of confusing. So this is partly why it's confusing, because you're taking one tradition that's, that's glommed the two together, and one tradition that's kept them apart, but then used non-Hebrew names for everything, that then get glued back together again at the beginning of the Renaissance, and, and then you get everything that we now think of as Western mystery tradition coming out of that. So I think you're right to be confused, in summary, because it's confusing. You, you had a question. Yeah, kind of in left field. Where is present Judaism? Where would they be in all? Are they in the, the rabbinic tradition? Or? Broadly 
in the rabbinic tradition, but I, I think what you see in Kabbalah and in Merkabah mysticism and a lot of Hasidic mysticism is some of those old First Temple mystical traditions, again, just kind of bubbling out from offstage into center stage at various times in Jewish history. So um, the mainstream of Judaism is that rabbinical tradition focus on the law and on the, on the teaching of Moses and adherence to the law. But all the other stuff just keeps leaking in as well. So I think it's... Um, it's easy to tell a story where it's like, well, there's this hardcore textual kind of thing, and that's that, and then there's this sort of, there's this liturgical thing, and that's Christianity, and they're completely different, and they're not completely different. Mm -hmm. They cross over all the time, and they, again, we cross and we cross and we cross. One last comment. Sure. Um, you know, given this uh, temple theology framework, it's really interesting that the rabbinic Judaism take on the Lord, the son of El, as the prime god, while Islam took on the father, El, as the prime god. That's interesting. Well, it's probably more correct to say that Judaism just merged right. the son and the father like, together. Focus more on they use the name of, the of Yahweh. Yeah, I don't know if that's accurate. I think rabbinic Judaism is I mean, it's focused on El still mm. in character. Sure. But it's complex. And that's yeah. a better question to ask a Jewish scholar yeah. than to ask me, frankly. Sure. <laughs> uh, it's time to finish up. Thank you very much. Happy to answer questions anytime over the next four days. <laughs>